welcome to another episode of Footnotes for Faith, uh, where each week we take a few minutes to expand our understanding of the Christian faith, connect scripture to life, and consider the claims of Jesus. Again, I'm your host for Footnotes for Faith, Scott Fisher, pastor at Delaware Valley uh, Christian Church in Media, Pennsylvania, just outside the great city of Philadelphia, and it's great to have you again with us on Footnotes for Faith on this uh, episode just after Valentine's Day. So I hope that you had a very special Valentine's Day with whatever, wh- whichever Valentine's you spend that with. And I know I had a great Valentine's dinner with uh, my beautiful, lovely wife, Maura. Uh, we'll be married 40 years in July of this year. And so we're very blessed and thankful for a long and very enriching marriage. And we always enjoy spending Valentine's Day together. So I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day as well. Uh, This week I wanted to talk about some things related to what we've been talking about, and that is the uh, authority of Scripture in our lives, the role of Jesus in our lives and understanding uh, Scripture, and also, in particular this week, I want to talk about how we deal with challenges, some of the challenges we face as we seek to follow Christ, as we seek to follow Scripture, and as, you, as we live this life of faith, if we put our faith in Christ, we realize that life doesn't all of a sudden just become a bed of roses, or it doesn't, Christian faith does not strain out the difficulties of life in this world, and we face many, many challenges to our faith. And in a future episode, I want to talk a little bit more about what biblical faith is. I, I received a question about that, and I do want to address that and maybe define that a little bit better. But let me just say at this point that biblical faith is not irrational or just leaping into the dark in a way that we really don't know what's going on in our lives or just putting our brains to the side. But biblical faith has definite content to it, it as definite and as an object, and that is uh, Christ and His and the Word of God. But at the same time, faith is does require a commitment of of ourselves to 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 to, to a certain amount of mystery, things that we can't explain. And one of the things I like to when I talk to people about faith, particularly Christian faith, I I like to point out, no matter who I'm talking to, that all of life, when we really think about it, involves those kinds of commitments that we make to things that we can't necessarily prove in a scientific way. And sometimes when we talk about, you know, proof or evidence, we're, we're really talking about, we, we have to be careful how we use those terms because sometimes we mean scientific proof, things that can be demonstrated in a laboratory versus what's often called legal or historical proof, which is preponderance of evidence, the kind of proof that you find in a courtroom where a jury is tasked with finding something to be finding a person who is charged with a crime to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. They don't necessarily have absolute 100% proof, but they are given evidence to make a reasonable decision. And I like to think that Christian faith, as we look at Scripture, is a reasonable faith, meaning it's based on evidence. It's based on a preponderance of evidence, and that's the kind of evidence we all use every day in our lives. So, the reason I bring that up is because there there are some things I dealt with this last week that presented the types of challenges to faith that I've had and also others have, and I wanted to talk about some things that have helped me 
in particular, one passage in the New Testament that I've gone back to over and over with people and also in my own life. A couple of things that happened this week were, uh, last, last week or last several weeks, I, I read an article in the, in the New York Times, I believe it was, about an, a chaplain who is an atheist chaplain, which sounds a little bit like a, a oxymoron, doesn't it? An atheist chaplain. But having done chaplaincy, I understand that chaplains in public settings come from all different backgrounds, religious backgrounds. And so this particular chaplain was ministering to an atheist prisoner who was about to be executed. You may have read about this. And so the article was about how this atheist chaplain ministered to this atheist convict on death row and tried to bring some comfort to him before his execution. And what was interesting about the article was that both the chaplain and the convict had very strong Christian upbringings. They were raised in evangelical Christian homes and had experienced some challenges and difficulties in in their upbringing, and they had seen inconsistencies, and they had seen teachings in the church that didn't square with what they consider, you know, what they saw to be justice and love, and they saw they saw some messy stuff. And anybody that's been around the church for any length of time, you're going to see messy stuff, and and it really it really turned them away from Christianity and. And so it was just interesting to read that that the types of things that they experienced that caused them to completely turn away, not just from Christ, but from believing in God at all. So that was one thing that really got me thinking. And then I was, I've talked recently with several people that are struggling in their lives with circumstances that have been very negative, and they've been praying for a long time for some relief from those circumstances and haven't been experiencing it, and they feel abandoned by God. They feel as though God has forgotten about them, and that moves them in a direction to to really struggle about the reality of faith and the reality of prayer. Is prayer really accomplishing anything? And And then the one that maybe hit me the hardest this week was I heard about another prominent leader who had a, a very public fall uh, in ways found guilty of the behaviors that were not just clearly inconsistent with his Christian profession, but illegal and shocking and raised all kinds of questions about his ministry and the reality of his ministry. This is someone that people looked up to as a a model and a hero in the faith, and these things always hit us hard. They at least they hit me hard, and I know they hit other people hard. It really raises lots of cynicism about the church, about Christian leaders, about the reality of the Christian faith. And many times when these things happen, people are hurt so deeply that they just question the reality of Christianity. They question the reality of the Bible, the truth of the Bible, the reality of who Jesus is. And and I don't in any way want to minimize these struggles because they are real struggles. The fact that they're real struggles means we have to reckon with them in our life of faith. We have to figure out, if we want to continue to pursue Christ, how we work through these things. And so I just wanted to share some thoughts with you this morning and I'm uh, today, and I'm sure that for, you, know, for you as listeners have your own struggles, and I'm sure some of these struggles will overlap with some of the struggles that you might have, and so I hope this would be helpful. I want to just take a few moments to address the issue of the fall of prominent leaders, because this is something that we see quite often in our culture, unfortunately. 
especially with the rise of social media and the fact that we can know so much more about what's going on in the world than we used to. So these things get a lot of publicity. So I just wanted to mention a couple of thoughts of how I find myself dealing with these things as I, after I kind of get try to work through the pain of it and the hurt of it. And it, it's, for me as a Christian leader, it's doubly painful because every time there's a public fall, it just raises the level of skepticism of Christian leaders in general. And polls will show that Christian leaders, pastors, are not considered uh, very highly in our culture because of a lot of these things. So a couple things. One is, I, I think if we step back and look at it as Christians who believe in the biblical doctrine of the fall, the fact that all people have sinned and come short of God's glory, as it says in Romans 3.23, the fact that all of us are sinners, the fact that all of us have this, what sin really is, according to Scripture, we get, we get hung up on sins, particular manifestations of our direction away from God, but sin is really just the fact that we move away from God, we move away from what He wants for our lives, we move toward ourselves, and the Scripture says that's our deepest problem. Jesus taught that that was our deepest problem, was this orientation away from God, which He came to bridge that gap to bring us back to God. And so I think as Christians of all people, we ought to really, in a sense, not be as shocked as we sometimes are, because we do believe that human beings, all of us, are capable um, and have a propensity towards sin and evil. So I don't want to, I don't think we should be shocked and surprised in the sense of that we have no explanation for these acts of, of sin and depravity. We actually do, and that is that it's called the fall of man. And so I think the Christian worldview can accommodate that. The other thing is that brings me some help is to know that Jesus himself predicted that such things would happen. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so Jesus is saying that there there may be some outward profession <clears throat> excuse me, of, of faith, but ultimately, just like a tree is known by its fruits, just like you know, an apple tree produces apples, ultimately what is in and the inside of a person will come out, and that's what we have to look at. And then Jesus said these shocking words in seven in Matthew seven twenty one: Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cut and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker workers of lawlessness. And so. Jesus himself predicted that there would be these, these situations where people would be doing things in his name, but be inwardly corrupt. And so the reason I find that helpful is because it was predicted. Now, if it wasn't predicted, if I was given the impression in Scripture that, that spiritual leaders would all be consistent and would not be, in a sense, sheep in wolf's clothing— or, or wolves in sheep's clothing at times, then I would find it more difficult. But because it actually is something that Jesus addressed, I find 
it helpful to know that we were told this would happen, not again, not minimizing how painful it is when it does happen. And I'm not saying that every person who falls is necessarily a wolf in sheep's clothing. It, it can just be because of their own brokenness and uh, compulsions and, and inability to overcome sin in some area of their lives. But the reality is that that this is something that we were told to expect by Jesus. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is that I think we have to also have a certain perspective to remember that that these falls, these these stumblings and falls and inconsistencies of of prominent leaders get lots of publicity, but faithfulness does not get much publicity. In other words, there are thousands upon thousands of Christian leaders, spiritual leaders in our country, thousands of churches every day that are consistently following Christ and seeking to lead people spiritually that aren't going to get any publicity, but it's when there is a, a prominent fall that that the publicity can skew our perspective to the point where we think, well, like everybody's like that. And that's kind of what happens in the, in the media. People jump on that and say, well, all pastors must be must be corrupt. Um, but we don't, you know, we don't say that with other, with other leaders, other professions necessarily. So I, I think it's kind of like the, what happens when a plane crashes. Uh, unfortunately, a commercial plane crash is devastating because it kills many, many people. But there are thousands upon thousands of flights taking off every day that don't crash. So we don't conclude that all planes are unsafe. And so, again, not to minimize the impact of such falls any more than we would minimize the impact of a plane crash, but it's to say we need to step back and remember that this does not mean that all pastors, all spiritual leaders in the Christian world are corrupt because there are these prominent examples of falls that have had tremendous impact, and we don't want to minimize that, but at the same time, we want to put it in a proper perspective. Well, I wanted to also share a, a scripture, uh, a particular passage in the Gospels that has helped me over the years in dealing with these challenges to my faith when things happen that really take the wind out of your sails, whether it's experiences with other believers, disillusionment in the church, difficult passages of Scripture to understand— trials that it seems as though the Lord doesn't deliver us from. So I, I want to, uh, to turn to a passage in the Gospel of John that that I have used for my own self and also used in to help the other, in others' lives, and I'm hopeful it'll be helpful to you. And so let me give you a little bit of background. So in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to the crowds in John 6, as he often did, and he had the, the crowds had, were aware that he had, did the, had done the miracle of the, the fish and the loaves and they, they came to seek out Jesus, and, and he believed they were seeking him out primarily so that he could do another miracle for them. And he says, you know, you came to follow me, you came to see me because I, I did this miracle with the bread, and he's trying to direct them more to thoughts about eternity and their souls and try to get them off of a, a singular focus on the physical. And so he, in the midst of this sermon that he gives them, or this message he gives them in John 6, he he lays some really heavy truth on them, some of the heaviest truth in the New Testament, and he talks about how he is the true bread rather than the manna that symbolized Jesus, the manna in the Old Testament, the, the, the bread that came down from heaven from God. He says, for example, he says in John 6, chapter 
53, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless, he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. He says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And uh, it says in verse 60, when many of his disciples, many in the crowd heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So they were offended by this teaching. It was hard. It was hard to understand. And then it, it goes on later, and it says in verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So whenever Jesus spoke to crowds, he, he often had this, this dual response. He, he had those that just walked away. Jesus wasn't... a. <laughs> wasn't what they would call today a particular, particularly seeker-friendly preacher. And if you know what that means, it means he didn't tailor his message to the crowds to, to make it acceptable to them. He, he spoke truth, and sometimes he spoke hard truths, and sometimes I think he did it for the purpose of thinning out the crowd. And so he, to see what level of commitment they actually had. And so the crowd walks away, and then, I love this part, because after the crowd walks away, it says, after this, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and said, no longer walked with them. And then verse 67, it says, so Jesus said to the 12, to the 12 apostles, do you want to go away as well? So he turns to the 12, and I believe here he's raising their level of commitment. He says, you know, what about you? Do you want to also walk away? And this is my belief, reading between the lines of Scripture. I don't think the Twelve had any idea more than the crowd, the other crowd did, of what Jesus was talking about when he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I don't think they were like, oh yeah, we understand that. I think they were just as dumbfounded. And everything in the Gospels, the evidence would show us that their little bit of, the little understanding they did have of what Jesus told them would indicate that they really didn't know what he was talking about either. But notice what Peter says, and Peter was often the spokesperson for the group, right, wrong, or indifferent. Peter was the one that would speak up, like the kid in class that always has his hand up. And Simon Peter answered him, answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I love that. I love that response, because this is what I believe Peter is saying, is, where do you go when you walk away from the Son of God? In other words, our following you, Jesus, is not based on our understanding of all that you have taught, not based on our being comfortable with what you're saying, not based on the clarity of, of understanding and interpretation we have of you, but it's because we believe you are who you said you are. And so many times in my Christian walk, when I've been faced with what I call fork, forks in the road of discipleship, where I'm going to go right or left, where I'm going to say, I'm either going to keep following Jesus no matter how hard this is, or I'm going to go the other way. It's often this passage I come back to when I say, where exactly do I go when I walk away from the Son of God? Because ultimately, as I've said before, our faith is in Jesus, not in our understanding of everything. And if we uh, demand our understanding of everything that God is doing in our lives, everything that we read in Scripture, if we have that kind of a demand, we can't really get very far in our following of Jesus, because he's going to take us down roads that we really don't know what's going on. 
But what we can know and we can believe is that he is who he said he was. And we have ample evidence in Scripture for who Jesus is and was. And so I want to encourage you today that if you're struggling today, whatever it is you're struggling with, and you're tempted to just turn your back on the Christian faith or turn your back on following Christ, just remember to ask yourself the question, where do I go? Where do you go when you walk away from the Son of God? And I want to encourage you to to cling to, to Christ, not to your understanding, but to Christ. And he will lead you and direct you through this time. And so you may have heard this week about the fall of a Christian leader. You may be struggling in your circumstances. You may feel abandoned. You may feel as though God's not hearing your prayers. You may have come across a difficult scripture, difficult truth to understand. Um, I want to encourage you to keep, keep moving forward, keep talking to God, keep coming to Christ, and he will be there for you. All right, well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Footnotes for Faith. You can hear, uh, you can access us, of course, on any of the podcast platforms. You can go to the website, www.footnotesforfaith.org. Um, feel free to reach out to me, leave a comment, ask a question through the email address. I always love to hear from people, and it helps me as I think about future podcasts. So have a great rest of your week and see you next time.